This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today, in Episode 5, we talk about fertility in pulses. Everything from starter fertilizer to soil pH considerations to nitrogen credit. We'll start with a visit to Tioga, North Dakota, where farmer Mark Schmidt says he's trying to improve his fertility in a year where he isn't quite sure what all to plant to make money. Then we will try to get some of his fertility questions and concerns answered by NDSU Extension Soil Specialist Dr. Dave Franson. If you're new to Pulse Crops, they include crops such as field peas, chickpeas, and lentils. This show follows some Pulse Crop farmers throughout the growing season and dives into some of the research that's helping them get through the challenges they face. And we'll also talk to a number of industry stakeholders along the way. We begin today's episode with North Dakota farmer Mark Schmidt. Mark's farm has been no-till since 1980, but he says this year it has been especially difficult to make the final decision on what exactly to plant. I'm going to plant soybeans, lentils, flax, durum wheat, hard red spring wheat. I do have a small amount of chickpeas in my plan, but it, it changes day to day. I've been cleaning seed for two weeks. I guess I'm cleaning enough so that I can make some decisions later on if I need to change acres depending on when we're able to get into the field, you know, and the moisture. We're allowed to plant flax up until the 15th of June, and uh, soybeans can be a later crop. If I can get into some of that ground early, I might put some chickpeas in them. With commodity prices where it is right now, you know, we don't have one crop that stands out as a moneymaker. <laughs> Everything is equally bad. <laughs> It's just unlike any other year that I've farmed. Like Laverne Johnson that you heard from in the last episode, Mark has had problems with root rots. But NDSU research convinced him to plant more crops in between the pulses. Tim, early on, we were really pushing our rotations. A typical rotation for us on our farm would be lentils, malt barley, peas, spring wheat, and chickpeas. We didn't really know any better. We didn't have a lot of disease pressure early. Then the university started doing more research. So now it got usually two, if not three, different crops in between our pulse crops. I mentioned earlier that I raised flax. Flax has been a good alternative for me to have in between cereals because we have a lot of disease pressure on our cereal grains, durum especially. Fusarium head bolite or scab, which produces vomitoxin on the kernels, has been real bad with our wetter pattern up here. But because of the, the root rots, I think NDSU is actually recommending four years in between our like peas or lentils or chickpeas. Crop insurance actually dictates four years in between chickpeas on the same piece of ground. Mark has benefited from this NDSU research on crop rotations in the past, and now he's going back to them for more research and information, this time on fertility. I went to so many workshops this winter on fertility that I pretty much don't know anything anymore. It's so interesting, all of the conflicting views that you get. NDSU put out a new circular this year on soybeans, you know, saying don't apply any phosphorus. You're not getting anything out of it. Soybeans are relatively new on our farm. Uh, this will be my fourth year of raising soybeans. And that mainly has to do with disease issues with our other pulse crops. 
we're getting uh, root rots moving into this area of the state. And to keep a broad leaf in my rotation, I guess I've moved more towards soybeans and been lucky and got the fall rains and wound up with decent yields. Well, we won't get into soybean fertility on this episode, being that this is the Growing Pulse Crops podcast, but we will clear a lot of things up on pulse crop fertility. To set the scene for that, here's what Mark's pulse fertility program looks like. We inoculate all of our pulse crops, so nitrogen is not needed. I do uh, apply a starter fertilizer, which is mainly phosphorus, and I've started adding sulfur and a little bit of potash in. I really have a hard time navigating our NDSU or university recommendations a lot of times on what exactly to do with the the pulse crops. They they do use quite a a fair amount of phosphorus and I I apply enough so I don't have any seedling damage but try to maintain my levels for the upcoming crops, you know, the cereal crops that'll follow in the rotation. It been interesting. I'm I'm applying more phosphorus this year because of where prices were. I, you know, economically, I can spend the same as last year and apply almost twice the amount of phosphorus. So hopefully this will be somewhat of a building year for fertility on our farm. One great aspect of growing pulse crops is their ability to attract nitrogen-fixing bacteria. For that reason, there is a nitrogen credit for pulses. I asked Mark how he uses that credit in his fertility program. Yes, I, I spent a lot of time on NDSU has a nitrogen calculator, and uh, this will be the sixth year that I variable rate nitrogen on our whole farm. So I spent quite a bit of time on that calculator, and it's so tough to know because, you know, we, we do gain nitrogen in our soils following a pulse crop. And there's still so much discussion on it because though that nitrogen most of the time does not show up in our fall soil tests. So we've got a rule of thumb as a credit. We don't actually get a number of what is there. So that nitrogen calculator is, I guess, was really interesting to me. And, and then it's, uh, do I trust it while trying to keep my costs as low as possible? in order to survive this farm economy that we're in. I think that's great context for the next part of this episode, which is with Dr. Dave Franson. Dr. Franson joined North Dakota State University faculty in 1994. After 18 years as an agronomist and manager in the retail fertilizer business in Illinois, he conducts soil and soil fertility research and develops education programs for extension agents and specialists farmers, industry professionals, and the public. I asked Dr. Franson to start off by giving us a high-level overview of fertility in pulse crops. Yeah, so fertility is pretty easy. doesn't have a nitrogen requirement. Back ages ago, before I came, there was a, you could put on 20 pounds of nitrogen if you didn't have that in the soil. Well, you you always have 20 pounds of nitrogen in the soil, so it's kind of silly, so I just throw that away. Nobody grows peas in a sandbox. So uh, everything is, is related to the inoculation. And, and with the pulse crops, it's, it's really hard to find somebody that really has a set rotation. You know, every third year you put in chickpeas or every third year you put in field peas. It, most of the growers of these crops are pretty opportunistic. 
economic wise. And so they'll feed them into their crop sequence. I like to use sequence instead of a rotation whenever the price is supportive. When it's not, it goes down. And that's why you see the acres of chickpeas, lentils, uh, field peas go up and down from year to year to year to year. It's because because people are being opportunistic and kind of locking in things when when prices are good. And then when they're not so good, they'll they'll stick in something else. So with that in mind, inoculation with the proper inoculant is, is just really important. People that are in soybeans, they tend to have a little bit more of a rotation, but I find that the pulse crops, they don't. So it's cheap. If you didn't do that, uh, you'd be spending huge amounts of money on nitrogen because the crops need a lot. And so it's just a cheap source of nitrogen. So that's a big thing. Uh, in the area where the pulse crops are grown, potassium is hardly ever an issue. So we don't talk about that hardly at all. And then the phosphorus uh, rates are pretty low. And a, a little bit of that can be put down with the seed. People can't get too wild about it. But as long as they, they keep the rates, you know, really low, you know, 40 pounds of 1152.0 if they're dry or 2.3 gallon of 1034.0, uh, they're going to be in pretty decent shape. But what about sulfur? You heard Mark Schmidt mention it a few minutes ago. And this actually may be one of those areas that farmers find a bit confusing. And it's because the tests, to use Dr. Franson's word, are garbage. Yeah, sulfur's a tough one. Uh, our soil test for sulfur, I kid with growers. I tell them that the scientific name for the, the value of the sulfur soil test is garbage. That that was the original meaning for the word garbage, and, and people use it for other names. But it really isn't diagnostic at all. So I recommend they don't even run it at all. It would either give them a false sense of security or overestimate the amount of sulfur that you need. It's just horrible. So usually what I tell people, if they have loam soils, or if they have coarser soils, sandier soils, then we've had uh, a lot of water in the fall of the year before, and we continue to have water into the spring that putting some on is probably a, a good idea. You know, 10 pounds, sulfur is not all expensive. So, you know, if you could get 10 pounds of sulfate sulfur on someplace, somehow that would be good. The elemental sulfur is not a good source. It doesn't react fast enough. I don't think we have the right bacteria in order to make that fast oxidation. It doesn't have anything to do with the products. I mean, they break down to very small particles, all of them that are commercially used for fertilizer, but the oxidation is just so dang slow that uh, I don't have any faith in it at all. If it tends to be a little bit cool or a little bit dry or something, it even makes the oxidation slower. So I always recommend a sulfate source or a thiol sulfate source, something that's really soluble altogether. So yeah, in the absence of any other diagnosis, putting a little bit on is probably not a bad plan. So we've briefly touched on the NPK and now sulfur, but fertility does get more complicated than simply how much of those does a crop need. pH, for example, is a consideration that NDSU added to their most recent pulse crop fertility circular. Something that we haven't talked about, but it appears in the new pulse crop circular lentils, field peas, chickpeas, is soil pH. We're having an emerging problem with acid pHs in the West, where most of these pulse crops are grown in long-term no-till particular. The nitrogen for their other crops is all applied near the surface, and when ammonia goes to nitrate, there's acidity released from that bacterial process, and 
and it's all in that zone, that top couple inches as a rule. So some of the pHs in some of these fields are down below five into the, I've seen them as low as four, three, you know, nothing grows, at least no crops grow. And the pulse crops tend to be sensitive to that. Chickpeas, you can grow them down to pH of 5.5. Field peas, you can grow them down to 5.5. But below that, it gets pretty dicey. And lentils are particularly sensitive to low pH. They really don't like the pH less than 7. All of these are Mideast crops, Middle East crops. That's where they originated. And you can imagine kind of semi-arid conditions, high pH as a rule. And so they carry that genetic baggage with them. And we're lucky, I guess, that field peas and chickpeas have a little bit lower. But lentils, um, they're not very tolerant of low pH at all. And I think that may be part of the problem with growing high-yield lentils in the southwest, for example, is the pHs are just too low for them. The fertilizer companies and the farmers themselves aren't set up to lime. Liming is uh, the application of any kind of calcium, calcium, magnesium, carbonate, oxide, hydroxide, anything like that, that when it reacts with acidity, makes water and neutralizes the pH. And, and people just aren't set up for that. We don't have any limestone quarries in the state. Our biggest source of limestone, we have two big sources. The biggest source is the sugar beet industry because they use very finely ground limestone in their sugar purification stream in order to make any impurities flocculate and fall out of the solution so only sugar comes out at the end. So the byproduct of sugar industry is what they call sugar beet waste lime. And it's free if you want to pick it up, but the distance between that and the West is a long way. Transportation's tough that's that's where most of it is and then when you get out in the field you have to dump it then you have to have a way to load it into a spreader and the spreader has to be able to handle wet stuff has to be really steep sided graphite lined uh, beds um, so it's not for the faint at heart so in bee country they figured out how to do this because they they use sugar beet waste lime quite a little bit because there's something in the sugar beet waste lime that fights a phenomyces root rot we found that out about 10, 15 years ago. And so most of the huge piles around the eastern sugar beet plants are all gone now because they've all gone on beet farmers' fields to fight the phenomyces. The other source is um, municipal drinking water facilities because, again, they use the finely ground limestone to flocculate. They could go on fields. They're good liming material. But that, those are our big sources. An interesting tidbit there at the end with lime and phenomyces as well. The overall message, though, is clear about really understanding your pH and what factor that is going to play in your overall program. But let's dive into this nitrogen credit a little bit. I think it's an important part of the fertility episode here. Uh, but maybe a good place to start on that is what is a nitrogen credit? Okay, so uh, we base our, in North Dakota, we base our nitrogen recommendations, let's just say corn, on the nitrogen response curves that we've received from many, many, you know, 100 and can't remember exactly how many studies we have, but many, many, many. And then from that, we subtract out our two-foot nitrate test because we have winter here and the, the nitrate gets locked up in a freezer for six, seven months. And so if we soil test in the fall, we're pretty sure that's what's going to be there in the spring. So we can subtract that. So that's what we do. And then Credit is something that you don't see in the soil test, but you know is going to happen. And so we see that if we're 
let's say sugar beet leaves is a, is a good example. Uh, those are returned to the soil here. And if they're really, really dark green, uh, we give about an 80 pound of end credit because they rot really fast and release this nitrogen really fast. But the legume credits, the annual legume credits are, are different. And that, again, that's nitrogen that we know is going to be available probably in the first month or two after the next crop is planted, but you don't see it in the soil test, but you know it's going to happen. So that's what a credit is. You've now heard this twice, once earlier from Mark Schmidt and then again right there from Dr. Franson. You get the nitrogen benefit from pulses, but the nitrogen itself doesn't show up in soil tests. So what exactly is happening here? Uh, when, you, when you have a pulse crop and you take a soil test right after you take it off, you'll find that the nitrogen in the soil is pretty low. And so that's why we have uh, crop credit, because in nitrogen rate studies after these crops, we know that it takes less nitrogen than if you would have had a wheat crop in there, for example, or durum, barley, sunflowers. So where does that come from? It's not coming from the crop. So these crops, they're thinking about growing seed. They're not thinking about what the farmer is going to do the next year. So certainly the ammonia in there, the nitrogen from the air is, is transformed into ammonia within the nodules. But the plants suck that all out. Plants suck out hardly everything that's in the root. The residue, the above ground stuff that's left after peas or any of those pulse crops, is a little bit higher nitrogen percentage than what you would get with, well, wheat or, or corn, for example. But it's not enough to really provide nitrogen the next year. So again, where in the world does this come from? So I have to go back into my soybean history, my soybean reading, to get the information for that. And, and these are all annual legumes. They've all gone through the same evolutionary pathway. They all control the soil biology to best get them to produce the most seed and to keep healthy all year. So there's two things that happen in soybeans, and I'm pretty sure that it happens in all of our pulse crops. One is, is that the amount of residue that's produced by our pulse crops is a lot less than what we get with wheat and what we get with corn. And the nitrogen content is a little bit higher. So what that means is, is that the nitrogen is being released by the organisms in the soil that break down organic matter and residues and release it into the soil as nitrate. The low nitrogen residues of, say, corn and wheat the breakdown of those ties up a lot of that nitrogen. Uh, we used to have a lot of fallow in the state. And one of the reasons for fallow was, was to build up moisture for the next year. But the next reason for fallow, whether the farmers really knew it or not, was uh, that nitrogen would be produced by the activity of bacteria, fungi, other, other organisms, and it would be there for the next crop. So... If you soil tested after fallow, you might find, I don't know, 80 pounds of nitrogen or something like that. If you soil test after field peas, you get maybe 20. And so there's, there's a higher amount. Well, that, that same process of mineralization happens whether you're growing a crop or not. It, it happens whether it's a fallow or not. But if you have a, a low nitrogen residue and a lot of it, like wheat or corn, then the organisms that are breaking down that residue have to take nitrogen in the soil in order to finish that breakdown. And so you don't see it 
you don't see that nitrogen. If you're growing a crop, let's say you're growing corn after after spring wheat, uh, there is no credit. In fact, if the wheat straw is, is more than a ton, then you probably should be putting on a little bit more nitrogen for the corn because some of the nitrogen in the soil is going to get tied up. But if you have a pulse crop, you don't have much residue, and the residue that you do have is a little bit higher in end, so the nitrogen tie-up with that pulse residue is pretty low. And so what you get is you get nitrogen expressed out of the soil that's not being tied up that the next crop can use. So that's part of the nitrogen credit. The credit is there because we can't see it with our spring soil test or fall soil test, but we know it comes during the year. And so part of it comes from mineralization that's realized by the pulse crop not tying up as much. The other part of it is a lot more subtle, um, and it took a long-term experiment with a really, really good soil fertility scientist at Wisconsin, Larry Bundy, to really find this out. He had the normal kind of Midwest rotation, corn, soybeans, but then Wisconsin's historically been an oat state also. Not sure why, but it just always has been. And so they had oats, and then they had oats after oats, which I don't know why in the world they put that in the rotation, but they did. But they found the oats after soybeans, of course, needed about 40 pounds less nitrogen than what, what the other did. But the surprising thing to Dr. Bundy was that next oat crop took about 10 pounds of nitrogen more than if it was, say, after corn or something like that. And the only way that he could figure out that that was happening was that the soybeans were helping to mineralize faster the most mineralizable portion of organic matter. So it wasn't available that second year afterward. Most people don't see this because in the corn-soybean rotation, all you see is that initial credit, but you don't see that the soil has been depleted after that. So that's where I think the nitrogen credit comes from, because it doesn't come because it's released from the nodules. It doesn't come because it's released from the residue. It comes because it, the residue is not tying up as much nitrogen as what other choice crops might be. And that also the biology, the pulse crops, the soybeans are changing the biology underneath those, those crops so that they speed up the rate of mineralization. And so until the next crop gets established, that speed up continues to happen. So that's why we see it. And it's about 40 pounds on the conservative side, and that's what it's in our racks. Well, certainly a complex topic, and I hope that's helpful to hear about all that goes into calculating that nitrogen credit. Dr. Franson emphasized that while farmers have plenty to worry about, it's important to mention some of the things they actually don't need to worry about. It's also good to understand what's really not important. We talk about iron nutrition, at least in the eastern part of the state, for, for soybeans with the iron deficiency chlorosis. We don't see that with lentils and chickpeas and infield peas, probably because of their Middle East origin. They, they learned, you know, 10,000 years ago how to cope with low levels of iron and high levels of lime in the soil, whereas uh, soybeans came from East China, where soils are slightly acid and they never had to deal with that in nature. So we're still fighting that war. There's really no micronutrients that we have a problem with. Uh, sulfur, I guess if you want to call it a micronutrient, which it isn't, you know, that's the only thing that might be a problem. But zinc, manganese, uh, iron, uh, molybdenum, all of those things in, in our state are, are not a problem. And so any kind of fertilizer that you pay a premium for in order to get them is just a waste. Always good to end on something we don't need to worry about, right? 
Thanks so much to Dr. Dave Franson and Farmer Mark Schmidt for sharing with us their time, expertise, and experiences for the Growing Pulse Crops podcast. We have a lot more great information coming your way throughout the 2020 growing season, so please subscribe and tell a friend who's also interested in pulses. You can find all of the episodes at our website, www.growingpulsecrops.com. This show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the North Central IPM Center. We're releasing two of these every month throughout the growing season, so we look forward to bringing you another episode very soon.